Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. We have a fine episode for you this week. Susie Bright will be here to talk about Beef, the new uh, comedy drama that is has got the quality TV people all in a tizzy over on Netflix. Sarah Stewart will be here to talk about How to Blow Up a Pipeline, a new eco-politics thriller that is in theaters now. And Stephen Garrett will be here to talk about Renfield, a vampire comedy starring Nicolas Cage as Dracula and Nicholas Holt as Renfield. But first, I wanted to talk about something very important. This is our 100th episode, the 100th episode of the Book and Film Globe podcast. It is something to celebrate. At least it's something for me to celebrate. When we started doing this show, we were recording it on Clubhouse, which is sort of a party line app, and we could only do it on the phone. So if you go back to the archives and listen to the episodes, the sound quality might not be what it is today because basically I had six guys, six guys, men and women, it wasn't always guys, on the Clubhouse party line, and I would uh, click on their icon when it was time for them to speak and we would we were able to record but it was it was pretty fuzzy sounding and people cut in and out wasn't so good then we switched to skype and that was a little bit better a little bit more professional and now we are on zencaster which is a excellent app that allows people like me to do podcasts from their home offices and sound vaguely like they are professional i mean i'm very professional but at least i sound professional now and this is it. This is our 100th episode. And, uh, you know, it's always been a, a dream of mine to have my own radio show, my own radio talk show. When I was a kid, I used to do interviews. I used to talk to my stuffed animals in bed. We would, we would stage radio shows. We would have talk shows. And uh, it's something I always wanted and was never quite able to achieve in full until now. And here we are. And I thank you so much for being a, a kind and loving and engaged audience. And I thank all of my uh, contributors for continuing to appear and help make my podcast dream come true. And of course, thanks to Sea of Reads Media for producing the show and giving me the chance to make 100 episodes. So now, without further ado, let's have our favorite stuffed animal, Stephen Garrett. Uh, on the show to talk about Renfield. And we'll be right back after this musical interlude. Stephen Garrett. Stephen Garrett, I summon you to the podcast. Yes, Master. Let's talk about Renfield. <laughs> <laughs> They're not, yeah. We're not actors. We're not actors, Stephen. I wanted to say, before we start talking about this, I wanted to welcome you to uh, our 100th episode hey. of, the, of the Book and Film Glow podcast. It's basically two years of talking about movies. You've been on about 75 of these episodes, so. <laughs> oh, wow. Jeez. Well. Approximately. You're like, you're, like, you're like the Ed McMahon <laughs> to my... Uh, hey All right. So, <laughs> so, so in, in typical fashion, we're going to talk about the trashy Hollywood movie of the week. And that is Renfield, which is kind of an in, not not indie. It's the definition of a not indie movie, but it's a horror comedy um, starring uh, Nicolas Cage 
as Dracula and Nicholas Holt as his manservant Renfield. Um, you know, you gave this a, a fairly positive review. You seem to have fun watching Renfield. I had fun watching Nicholas Cage as Dracula, the role he was born to play. He kind of, he's kind of like a Gonzo um, parody of Bella Lugosi in this, right? <laughs> well, and they even have that kind of. I, I don't know how you felt about it. I thought it was kind of wonderful. Their their black and white kind of ersatz 1930s homage to Bela Lugosi, where they kind of digitally insert Nicolas Cage onto yeah. his body, or maybe they just meticulously recreated it. It was fantastic, though. Yeah, that was great, except that it was all part of this bad beginning record scratch, like, hey, this is me. I bet you wonder how I got here thing that Renfield was doing. And this is my problem with the movie. It's, Nicolas Cage's performance is crazy, can be fun, classic Cage you know, in, in the career retrospective of Cage, whenever it's made, there are, there are plenty of scenes from Renfield that you, you could include here. I mean, he really chews up the screen, but the script is awful. Awful. This movie is awful. Very good assistant. No, he's evil. We will protect you. You are the word of the most trusted institution on earth, the Catholic Church. Renfield, your sole purpose in life is to serve me. Now, let's eat. I just want a normal life again. God bless you, Mr. Renfield. Oh, God bless you, nuns. You're a hero. Robert Montague Renfield. Let me explain. I work for Dracula. Count Dracula? It's the real Dracula! Some call me the Dark One. Others, the Lord of Death. <laughs> so I have to say, though, they had me in Nick Cage's Dracula. You know what I mean? Like, as soon as I saw the trailer for this, as soon as I heard the premise, I was like, I'm in. This looks so fun. And uh, I did not let it disappoint me. Despite a lot of truth in what you're saying, I did not let its shortcomings dampen my, uh, my uh, not really enthusiasm, but uh, delight at the whole premise and the way it was executed. It does disappoint, I think. I, I clearly it disappointed you more. Um, but I, I do uh, admit that there are a lot of things that just don't work, but Nick Cage works so well that I just couldn't stop laughing so well. while I was watching so, so well, it's perfect. But the movie... And I even think all the stuff with you know, Nicholas Holt is Renfield, and he is far and away. Great. Uh, he's far and away not one of my favorite screen actors. He's fine, and the stuff where he's in this sort of codependence anonymous group in a church and the therapy I thought that was fun. All very like fun. That. All very fun. Where yeah. the where the movie collapses is with its stupid New Orleans crime family subplot that ends up taking over the entire movie. And, you know, Aquafina plays this cop who's trying to get revenge for her dead father that this ridiculously cartoonish crime family killed. And it's just like, why not just have, you know, a, a funny movie about Renfield kind of trying to come out from under the shadow of Dracula and trying to stop him? You know, the, the crime plot really, to me, it felt very, it was weirdly inserted and it was poorly written and, you know, and, and it led to a lot of, a lot of violence. 
so much it. violence. Gore. Oh Gore-tastic. But not, not necessary. But yeah, Gortastic and not in the Dracula sucking blood way, which you would expect. But we're talking like, because Renfield has this power, like to eat bugs, and then it gives them apparently the power to just rip off people's limbs willy-nilly. Yeah, I mean, incredible uh, superpowers, like like a Marvel villain or hero or whatever the hell it is. It's it's ridiculously amped up, which is really, and, and also like Dracula, Dracula's blood heals wounds, which is like, what? I mean, I, I'm always kind of amused when uh, canon gets messed with and tweaked and, uh, you know, they add these new rules to whatever the universe is. Yeah. And I'm sure, what are, the, what are the vampire movies where the vampires can go out in daylight? And you're just like, wait, what? No. Sure. You know, and they're like, all right, whatever, sure. Yes. I don't care so much about vampire rules or sparkly vampires. Ah. Or, what, what I care about is that, is that the movie has like, I mean, I suppose this has narrative consistency, but the crime plot is so bad. And, there, and there's a lot of it. And there are a lot of scenes that don't involve Renfield or Dracula at all, that it's just like Aquafina and Ben Schwartz or uh, Aquafina mm-hmm. and Shore Agostolu, the, the president from The the Expanse, you know, this terrific actor who um, plays this incredibly cartoony character who never gets a drop of blood on her. <laughs> no, no. Not, yeah, she, and she always looks fabulous. I mean, she that, never really gets her hands dirty. And no one seems to care. And she doesn't seem to care about all this violence that's going on around her. And, and it's like, there's lots of scenes of their, you know, it's like, I'm like, are we watching outtakes from, from another movie? Because why is Dracula part of this? It makes no sense. And uh, yeah. And then, and then Nick no. is like, oh yeah, I work for Dracula. He's like, Dracula? You work for Dracula? Oh my God, is Dracula here? And it's like, what is going on? So, I mean, so the I think- The Lobo crime family. The it's, Lobo. It's preposterous. I mean, it's too broad, right? I mean, you get broad and then there's broad and this is like out of control, ridiculous, preposterous. Like they all live in a, what looks like a, a decommissioned bank with like, they, they painted the Ionic Columns gold you know, outside. Yeah, they have a torture like, dungeon. They have a torture dungeon. Yeah, they have a torture dungeon that's like very, actually quite well put together. I mean, it feels like a Soho club. Mm-hmm. You're just like, how is any, this is ridiculous. And, and Aquafina is a traffic cop who somehow gets embroiled in all this. And you're just like, what? And, and then really sister, good fighter. her sister. Oh my God, her sister. Who's yeah, like, she's uh, a sister who works for the FBI. FBI. Yeah, who just hangs out at the police station. Just hangs out at the police station. You're just like, what? She's a whore. She's really not very good. Aquafina, I mean, Nicholas Holt, I think, is a great actor. I, I really enjoy him and a lot of stuff, and we may disagree on that. But I, uh, I thought he, he – uh, I just love the idea of his kind of soulful, doe-eyed, you know, kind of mournful, sad little, you know, Renfield uh, trying to figure out a, a loophole to get out of his, like, horrible, you know, soul-crushing contract with, with Dracula. And then Nick Cage's Dracula is fantastic. But then, you know, they introduce Aquafina, who – I guess in another universe with different actors might have probably become a love interest, but here is just like they're both in each other's friend zones, like, and that just seems odd. And Aquafina is hilarious usually, and here she it's just not written as a funny role, and there's just nothing to it. So there's nothing for her to do. Yeah, so she's like a block of wood, um, and yeah, she moves and she moves like one too, unless she has to become like an action hero, and then suddenly she's an action hero. So I, I don't know, like I felt like this, you know, the way it was constructed, like they had all this nit, 
you could have done a 15 minute black and white prologue or something, you know, really like get inter, you know, instead of like Renfield telling us what happened, show him get drawn into Dracula's charms. And then, and then you flash forward to the, but I just feel like it was a really bad script. It was written. It was like bad improv. Like all this sort of like, hey, we we we're, hey, we're friends with Ben Schwartz from Parks and Rec. We could get him to play a dude. I do like Ben Schwartz though, but he was even borderline annoying at a certain point. I mean, for a lot of people, he's very annoying off the bat. I kind of enjoy his annoyance. He should have, uh, but even here, instead of his mother, him. he should have had his annoying sister played by Jenny Slate. I know, I love that combo. Right, oh, that would have been God. great. Um, but they didn't go there, and you know, so so you know. I, there's a there's the germ of a great uh, classic genre uh, horror comedy in Renfield. It doesn't yeah. to me doesn't germinate. <laughs> no, no, unfortunately. I mean, it's there though. You get these glimpses. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, especially that scene where, I mean, the fact that you know, like whatever, when Renfield has his like pastel sherbet colored sweater, you know, this Mondrian sweater, and he's in that in that studio apartment, and and uh, you know, Nick Cage is there berating him that's a great i mean i really like that yeah that's a great scene and there's a couple of others where the two of them were like yeah. you know we're, we're, where dracula's just give, giving him a hard time uh the scene where dracula comes in and, and, met, and you know comes into the um the support group is really funny yeah it's really funny you know there's like the there's like a half is funny there's a I half mean, dozen I, go ahead i like I, I also sorry i like i i do like the premise that renfield is like tortured by the idea of killing innocents you know, yeah. incidentally, the whole throwaway gag about the, the busload of cheerleaders. And then, you know, five minutes later, he literally sees a busload of cheerleaders is like, oh, my God, you're kidding me. You know, I don't know. It's that's an easy joke. It's a cheap laugh, but it, it made me. No. But, I like a cheap laugh. Know. I like a I good like cheap, cheap laugh. laugh. But yeah. it, but it wasn't. The problem is, is that, you know, you had a lot of cheap laughs and a lot of good, good funny set pieces mixed in with what to me felt like a screenplay that that wouldn't have passed muster in year two of film school. No, no. And I, I mean, I was, the, the point I wanted to make was the, the um, support group, uh, Renfield is using the support group to find bad people that he could feel better about killing that will actually make other people's lives better, which is to say, to kill the toxic codependents, you know, that are torturing the people's lives who are in the support group. And I thought that was kind of a clever idea. Um, yes, but, it, but poorly developed. Lobo crime family. Yeah, not but developed. Po- but poorly developed, like everything else in the in this movie. But hey, whatever. If you want, if you like Nicolas Cage, and most people do, uh, and you want to see some classic campy Nicolas Cage scenes to rival getting the bees poured over his head in The Wicker Man, or <laughs> all, all that crap he does in Mandy. Or whatever, where whatever Nicholas, you know, or the or the the scene with the wooden hand and Moonstruck, whatever Nicholas Cage stuff you like, there's you've been waiting your whole life for Nicholas Cage's Dracula, and that is here. He delivers. He delivers. He absolutely, sure. absolutely delivers. You know what? Uh, weirdly enough, I read this or I heard it that uh, this is the first studio film that Nick Cage has made since I think Ghost Rider in 2011. Wow. Or something like that. Like it's been over ten years. That would be Ghost Rider. Made a movie that would be years. Ghost Rider. That would be Ghost Rider too, because the original Ghost Rider came out in two thousand and seven. Okay, all right, fair enough. Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance. He's like had his. Now he's having a mainstream comeback because he's his his indie indie films have been so popular. 
I think that's what's interesting is that, well, I mean, whatever, right? What's the, the legend of Nick Cage is that he's an Elvis fan and he went into bankruptcy because he overspent. Uh, and, didn't he, you know, like he's had a really crazy personal life, right? But I think it, it really has been a, a deliberate choice for him over the past 10 years or so to make like non-studio movies, to make these weird indie movies like Pig, like Mandy, like, you know, unbearable weight of massive talent. And uh, I think he's a guy who's kind of checked all the boxes in his personal, aspirational, professional life and is looking for something that's fun and interesting. And so I, I love that Dracula is the thing that kind of brought him back to, like, the mainstream. The role he was born to play. Now, Stephen, I want you to go out there and find me fresh movies to review. <laughs> More movies that I can eat. <laughs> Wait, who's your favorite Renfield? Oh, Artie Johnson in Love Artie at First Johnson. Time. In love at first sight. That's one, that's I, that's one of my favorite movies ever. But I, I have bad. It's pretty funny. Can you do his laugh? Can you do that, Artie? Johnson? I, I, I don't remember his laugh. Can you? Isn't he got like? <laughs> isn't that isn't that from Love at First Bite? Or did I just embarrass myself? Only on the Book and Feel, Film Globe uh, 100th episode can you hear Stephen Garrett do an Artie Johnson. <laughs> I'm gonna look that clip up. I swear to God, that's how he laughs. You don't remember that. I don't know, man. I'm gonna find it. I have, I have, I consume a lot of media. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Fair enough. All right, now I've consumed Renfield. I have, I have, I have seen, I've seen enough, and I've heard enough about it for now. But Stephen, we'll talk to you on our 101st episode. Welcome back to Boom Talk today. Teaching myself to make a homemade blasting cap. And if this works, it'll be step one: making our own improvised explosive. Might be headed to Texas for the winter. What's in Texas? This project. What kind of project? Try to stop the pipeline from being built on my property. Poisons the air, water. Damn, this place is sick. You guys cooking meth in here? You ready to start working? We have to show how vulnerable the oil industry is by hitting something big. Michael, what do you think the odds are we blow ourselves up? I don't really care. A normal item on a college bookshelf when I was in college back in the previous century was a novel by Edward Abbey called The Monkey Wrench Gang, which is a sort of a environmental activism slash terrorism novel about a bunch of idealistic young people who were throwing a monkey wrench into the ecosystem, the eco-destruction system, as it were. It sat alongside books like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and Wide Sargasso Sea and Ruby Fruit Jungle. Those are the books that the, all the hip kids were, were reading back then. And that, that uh, Tom Robbins novel where the woman had the big thumb, the hitchhiker, uh, and now we have uh, a modern version of the Monkey Wrench Gang. It's not an ad adaptation of that uh, book, but it is in the spirit of it to, to some extent. And it is more um, feminist and more multicultural than that book ever was. It's called How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And it is a very left-wing indie movie that is in theaters now in some cities. It, it's kind of hard to find. I mean, I, I live in... Austin, Texas, so uh, lefty movies do tend to get a play here, but not every place does. Sarah Stewart saw and reviewed How to Blow Up a Pipeline, and she's here with me today 
to talk about it. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Neil. Hello. So I want to welcome you to our 100th episode, by the way. Whoa, congratulations. Yeah, yeah it's a lot. You know, like I said in the introduction, uh, we, uh, we recorded a lot of the early episodes on the Clubhouse app. So uh, we've, we've, I don't know if we've improved the content. I think we have, but we've definitely improved the sound quality since then. So uh, here, here oh, we I are. remember the clubhouse. That was fun. It was fun. It was fun to be in the clubhouse, but it, it didn't exactly um, lead to uh, audio bliss. And there was a lot of, uh, you know, p- people had to like wave on the app and raise their hand. And I had to call them like I was, like I was uh, uh, Howard Hessman and head of the class. That's that's a dated Gen X reference. Um, but speaking of uh, of dated Gen X references, uh, referencing the Monkey Wrench Gang to refer to how how to blow up a pipeline. I feel like that you, you mentioned that as well in your review. I did. Um, I I often think of the Monkey Wrench Gang. I I think of it fondly. I remember enjoying it, as you said back in the day. Uh, you know, it was amongst my my college reading for sure. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've always been a, a pretty big Edward Abbey fan. Um, and yet I had some serious problems with that book because it, uh, felt dated even back then, uh, particularly in its treatment of women. So I was glad to see a new eco activist take coming out in, uh, how to blow up a pipeline. And it is very, uh, female forward. I mean, the woman who is in charge of the, there, there's a, a woman in charge of the pipeline, uh, explosion and there's lots of prominent female characters, you know. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, look, this you gave this movie five stars, and I, I find it hard to argue with it, whether you agree with its politics or not. I mean, it's just a a taut, well scripted, nicely acted, naturalistic thriller um, that really it has a strong point of view and sticks to it. And they, you know, they, it's great characters. It, none of it feels it feels very real, you know. It does. It does. I mean, I have to say, I was I was excited to see it uh, from the trailer, but I had mixed hopes for it, you know, because these are the kind of movies where you often get bogged down in kind of tedious monologuing, uh, exposition, or you just get too many kind of tangled backstories that are tough to pull off. And this movie amazingly just does all of this, handles all of it so well. Um, you know, it has, it has, I, I'm not sure, maybe seven main characters, all of whom we learn about gradually during the overarching plot, which really zooms in on them assembling this uh, couple of bombs that they are going to use to blow up the titular pipeline. And uh, and it just, it all works so well. It's really well paced. Uh, I think it has a bit of a, a tip of the hat to Steven Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven movies. Uh, you know, but but obviously with uh, much more interesting and lefty stakes. Yeah, it, you know, yeah, they put together a sort of a super team, and you're right. There are there are a lot of um, granular details about how they are putting together the bomb and how they're constructing this uh, this act of eco terrorism. Um, and uh, but but there are flashbacks to the various characters to find out how they got interested in this in this particular activity and you know i'm not a fan of flashbacks uh, at all uh but it does work here because they're short and they are very germane to the story right and they, it, they it, really yeah yeah they do a great job of explaining to, to the point where i found myself like thinking like what's the deal with these punk kids like i wanted to know and they took a while and they were major characters though that couple the sort of sexy, sexy Portland anarchists. 
Yeah, the sexy Portland anarchists, I think, are kind of the the bait uh, maybe to get some viewers in, especially Lucas Gage, who people will know from The White Lotus, who they'll know from you. Uh, you know, he's sort of, I think, the most famous face here. Uh, but but they turn out to be really interesting, too. I mean, everybody has a, a pretty uh, good amount of nuance in their character development. And by the way, Lucas Gage isn't just a famous face. He's also actually really entertaining and terrific uh, in, in the movie. As you know, the entire cast is like the guy who played uh, the guy who was um, there's a uh, like a Texas rancher, basically, or farmer uh, from West Texas who is definitely not um, your typical left wing eco activist. But he kind of is turned toward this uh, life of uh, eco terrorism because the pipeline has poisoned his land. Very interesting and, and, and really a great way to embody things that are being said and have been said about the, the people who are suffering most from uh, oil and gas destruction, from climate change, um, you know, without being pedantic about it. Not particularly pedantic. I mean, and then there's this sort of strange, angry, young Native American bomb expert who's... Um, you know, they treat with a reasonable amount of humor, given that like he, you know, he has had the other than maybe the, the guy from Texas, the most to lose from this. Although I guess you could argue that the woman who has leukemia from living near a chemical plant in Long Beach is, is losing the most since she's dying. Yes. Well, she's clearly just decided that she's she's all in for this, you know, given that she probably has the most finite lifespan of, of the group here. Uh, well, Sasha Lane also fantastic, by the way. I have always been a big fan of hers, and she's really good here. Yes, yeah. So uh, you know, good. I mean, it, it's a very this is a very indie movie to the point where it starts the opening before the action starts. There is an apology for filming on stolen land. You know, and it's like, um, I mean, that's like that is you know a hallmark of the left these days. That when when a, a left wing politician or activist speaks in front of a legislature, they apologize for for appearing on, on stolen land. Uh, but it, you know, not, none of that matters because the movie itself is so um, you know taut and kind of and grainy and gritty and good. It reminds me of like a good like nineteen seventies political thriller. I saw it at the Alamo Draft House here in Austin, and they um, they played a trailer before uh, for a movie called Sorcerer. Uh, by William Friedkin, which is like a thriller about transporting um, like flammable material across a mountain range in South America, um, and it had a, it, it has somewhat of a similar vibe to some to, to that. Absolutely, yeah, and I think that the, the cinematography also nods at that really well. It just sort of it, it really looks like something that that could have come out of the seventies, uh, and and you know feels that way in terms of the. In a really intelligent way and handles its subject matter. I do worry, you know, given what you were saying about finding it in Austin, I, I, I worry that uh, the distribution for this movie and the marketing for this movie is going to be pretty limited and that, and that it may really find its life uh, on streaming. Uh, well, I think so. I mean, when I put up, a, you know, when I, I put up on my social media, whenever I see a movie, a little description of it and some jokes and whatever. Uh, and I got a lot of, uh, a lot of takes uh, on Renfield which was garbage. And Stephen and I just talked about it. He liked it more than <laughs> I did. Uh, fun garbage, but garbage. And, and, but I got z literally zero engagement on how to blow up a pipeline. No one, no one had heard of it. No one was, no one was interested in it. No one cared about it. And that's just kind of the fate 
of uh, of indie movies a, a lot of times. You know, I, I also thought it was interesting. You pointed out in your review the woman who uh, was one of the co-screenwriters and was the star of the movie said in an interview that they could. This was distributed by Neon. They couldn't get mainstream distribution for this movie because the studios are funded by oil companies. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting that she that they just came out and said that to their faces as they were pitching this. Uh, but I suppose not not totally surprising. Uh, I, I also really liked that she said that uh, the movie was, had so much energy to it because there was no one over thirty five on set, which yeah. as somebody who's fifty, you know, I, I uh, yikes! But uh, you know, it, it it does. It undeniably does, and and I think that it is a Gen Z cre occur as they as as we old people say. It sure is, man. It sure is, and you know what? They're right. They are a hundred percent right, and I think they should run with it. I hope this is the beginning of a whole genre of Gen Z agitprop. I, 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 I don't care whether they're right or wrong. I don't actually care um, one way or another. My, my interest is in seeing good, exciting movies that aren't pretentious um, and that, that have a, a point of view, you know, and, and that, that this movie does that and then some. So um, I don't, you know, I, I don't know. I don't care whether they're right. I mean, I think they probably are, but in this case, but, you know, but so what? But the point is that, you know, it, it I, I, you know, that said, you know, a nice, a, a spry 50-something, you know, cinematographer or, or on set would, you know, we old people need work, too. <laughs> we not, do, let, but... Let's not be ageist, but yeah, we, I, I know that, I know that we, we kind of like, I can only imagine the condition, they were, they probably weren't staying at the Marriott while they were shooting this sucker in the middle of the desert of West Texas. Oh, uh, this is Red Roof Inn all the way. At best. <laughs> <laughs> no craft services on how to blow up a pipeline. I don't. Sarah and I recommend it quite highly. You should. Uh, you should look for it if you live in a place that like features independent film. Hopefully, it'll be there. If not, uh, keep an eye out for it on. Um, I don't know the the uh, the Chairman Mouse Streaming Network or wherever <laughs> left wing movies. And uh, hell yeah! All right, thanks, Sarah. Thank you. I have a very full life that I'd love to get back to. I'm gonna find you and take what little you have. You're just a suburban housewife, and now you're stuck in a life you never wanted. You have this serene Zen Buddhist thing going on. I'm a dangerous guy. <laughs> so stop messing with me and leave me alone, or else. I would love to let this go. But actions have consequences. All the smart people are talking about one TV show. Well, two, really. They're talking about succession. They're always talking about succession, but the other. Uh, sort of quality TV show of the moment is a program on Netflix called Beef, which is a uh, sort of a 
comedy drama set among the world of Asian Americans in Southern California. It's like a revenge thriller as well. Uh, Susie Bright wrote about it very glowingly on the site this week, and she's here to talk to me about beef. Hello, Susie. Hey there, Neil. It's great to be with you and yes. to sink our teeth into this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you don't have a beef with me. It gets pretty, pretty ugly. Now, I haven't finished the show. I've only, I've only watched the first three episodes. So I'll admit, I, I, I hear that it takes a, a crazed... Well, actually, I want to applaud you because the critics who were forced to just stuff this down our gullet, you know... 10 episodes real fast and then write a review. It was too much. This yeah. thing should be viewed. It, it actually would have been more wonderfully expressed in a broadcast television show where each episode would build and build. And if you can bring yourself to do that, especially if you have a little circle of friends and you're like, we're not going to push it. We're just going to do one a week and let ourselves be worked into a frenzy, I would highly recommend it. Well, I don't, I don't have any friends, but I am able to, (laughs) you know, always with this, always with this, we were going to talk movies, but it ends up being lonely guy. Lonely guy. (laughs) But, but as a lonely guy, I am able to parse out my viewing um, slowly. I did watch two in a row uh, yesterday as we talked, but then, you know, I am, I got to say, like, I wouldn't say I have, have a beef with the show because it's obviously extremely well made and very well acted. Stephen Yoon, uh, as who's sort of the protagonist, I, I would say, well, there's two protagonists, but he is, he is just spectacular in this. I, yes. I just, I found it to be, I'm just like, why is this entertainment? It was so intense and so very, very emotional pro- show, I, I felt, you know, very personal and emotional. And I'm just like, why are we watching this for entertainment? <laughs> Well, you know, some people ask that about Curb Your Enthusiasm or uh, many people. Yes. (laughs) Yes, they do. Or uh, because the cringe factor or the like touching the hot stove factor. I mean, I loved um, flirting with disaster, but I had to go hide in the closet during Meet My Parents because as things get worse, you know, as we see what human beings are capable of when their id is dragged out of the box. Um, it, it can make your hair stand on end. And some, I think we're all on a spectrum of how much you can revel in that and um, find yourself like, yes, yes, take it in. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's, let's discuss the premise real quick. Basically like there's a, there's a minor traffic incident uh, Stephen Yoon plays a, um, a down-on-his-luck uh, Korean-American contractor, a real loser, really, when it comes down to it. And Ali Wong... He has a beautiful side, Neil, that you will come to see. <laughs> oh, he, 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 he has a soul, but he's, but he's, he but he's down soul. on his luck. But he's down on his yeah, luck. Yeah, down-and-out contractor. And Ali Wong is like a nightmare out of a goop ad. Yeah, she is bourgeois housewife gone gone wild mm-hmm. yeah who w- works at like a like a upscale owns like an upscale plant store basically like decor store and has a horrible boss and uh they have a lot of money she and her husband have a lot of money but they have they have a lot of problems too uh i mean Stephen yoon has his problems are are pretty obvious and ali wong's um are are not are 
less uh, on the surface and more underneath, but they're there. And they have this minor traffic incident in a parking lot of a hardware store, basically. And it turns into this, you know, insane, uh, Baroque revenge melodrama. As someone who has been in an upsetting situation in a Costco parking lot, and I bet a lot of people are, that's why this thing grabs you is because we've all been in that parking lot. In fact, I remember Kathy Bates did a very funny bit um, a long time ago in that movie Fried Green Tomatoes where she's just like smashing cars in the parking lot. And she says something like, I'm old. I have insurance. (laughs) There's, yeah, a lot of that road rage. And I wondered if this show might spike in Los Angeles where it's just become like a second career, having problems with complete strangers on the freeway. It is set in Los Angeles, or at least Los Angeles and environs, Orange County and, and, uh, and the mm-hmm. Valley. Um, it's, not, it's not like a, an L, a downtown L.A. show. Uh, these are people who live in Los Angeles but aren't what you would necessarily think of as L.A. people. Yeah, and so it is very L.A., but I also, you know, it's very, um, very Asian, right? Like there's a lot of nuance that I maybe I'm not quite catching um, about the relationships among Korean Americans and Japanese Americans and Chinese Americans. There's, there are, there's a lot of sort of tension. Well, and there is and there isn't. I mean, I am a Californian, so a lot of this was familiar to me. But for example, one of the things that Danny, our uh, lead guy played by Steve, when he first insinuates himself into her house and is just pretending to be a normal guy, he uh, he clocks that she's also Korean American, but they don't you know they don't say anything about it to each other. In fact, we the viewers may not notice that until he's looking at her mantelpiece with her perfect little pictures of her children and her husband, and he just says very casually, but you can feel the inner bitch behind it. He says, "Oh, your husband." Uh, He's Japanese. Now, I don't know what he saw in that picture that made him go, wow, she didn't marry a white guy for all this money. She married a Japanese guy and that he looks down on her. It's just his face and his slight snotty tone of voice. It doesn't matter how he knows. It's just we've all been in that place where someone judges who you married. You know, someone looks at the pictures and they make a little a little aside. So yeah, yeah but there there's are... some, but there's some there's some racial and ethnic tension uh there that, you know, there there's a sort of a level of nuance that I want I'm wondering if that drives the narrative more than we might think. You know, this was this this uh, show was um was written and directed uh by Asian Americans. So it's sort of part of, to me, it's like the quality TV version of the Asian Renaissance that reached its recent peak uh, with the Oscar win of everything, everywhere, all at once. This is all part of that, that movement, that sort of parasite, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, and some of the critics who, who have said, you know, part of the immigrant and second generation experience and how, you know, by the time, you know, you're the one who's been born in America, your parents are the ones who weren't or your grandparents were, how that plays out. We're seeing that in a lot of immigrant stories. Yes, if you have some backstory, you get some little extra yum-yums from it. Um, I mean, I felt that way when I watched Fast Times at Ridgemont High and I couldn't stop laughing about Jeff Spicoli because I went to high school 
with surfer guys who were exactly that boy. Exactly. You know, so you have these moments where if you know a little bit, it's extra, extra. And on the other hand, the universality and the skill of the filmmaking also lends something. One piece I wrote about in my review, which I didn't see anybody else doing, and I'm like, they're missing the boat, all the, you know, come on, film critics. We're supposed to be, uh, you know, very well versed in our history. But many elite Korean filmmakers have been schooled in French film. I mean, they study it formally as well as glory in it. And when I saw what he did with this whole series, and I should say his name, it's Lee Sung Jin. He's the mastermind of this. Um, and people call him Sonny. That's his nickname. When he came to this, he decided to take the tenets of what is now called Korean revenge drama. It, it became famous with um, a straight ahead action movie called Old Boy. And it has now, it's, just a, a genre all its own. He took that, which is basically the mythic forces, almost from your ancestors, that mean you cannot let go of a beef. You cannot. You cannot go the high road. You have to have revenge. It's like a different version of the, the kind of godfather revenges we see from a Sicilian tradition, but still very deep. You have this part, but then they take the French farce. This there's just, I, I, you know, I quoted Voltaire. I said, he is taking everything that people have loved about the French farcical tr tradition, both politically and theatrically, and applied it to this. I'm, if I was at a press conference with the man, I'd be like, tell us everything about your favorite French films, because I, it's obvious that you used these pieces to make it. Do you have to know that to enjoy the series? Of course not. But every little thing that you you know, I mean, just the idea of having someone who is your nemesis and then starting to feel like the two of you were separated at birth. By the time, Neil, by the time you get to the end of this show and you see what happens to these two, it's not that they go to bed together, but their intimacy gets deeper than just about anybody. Yeah, you see it coming. It's you can see it coming. You can see it coming. All right. Well, before we cut off, I wanted to mention um, in in this, I, I found that you know this was an episode two or three. I don't remember. There's a very kind of intimate and emotional church scene um, oh, that yes. I've seen spotlighted a lot, where um, Stephen Yoon's character goes to a um, goes to a, like a, a Korean Christian church. Praise that's church. In, they call it a yeah, praise church. Yeah. A praise church. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and there, and he has a, basically like has a breakdown uh, in it while they're <laughs> singing, a, singing a song about Jesus. And I, I, you know, I, it was not played for comedy. You know, they played this as, as realistic and they also didn't play it uh, making fun of the church in particular. Like it wasn't a really a no. parody of Christianity and, you know, I, I am not a, a religious person, but I have had, you know, in like, you know, addiction meetings or, or elsewhere. I've had those right, sort of right. come to Jesus moments where you're like, yes. you kind of like feel your sins all gather around you and you, and you break down a little bit. And I found that to be um, very, very moving and very well portrayed, be beautifully uh, acted by, by Stephen Yoon and uh, very touching. 
I will say again, though, this is my my problem with Beep as a whole is that I was just like, why am why is this entertainment? <laughs> you know, because th- this is not old boy. You know, this is not a Korean action film where like the uh, the melodrama breaks up every fifteen minutes for some kind of crazy stunt scene. I mean, this is like hardcore, r- realistic, semi-realistic at least drama, dramedy, or at least dramedy. And you know, I found it. It's it's um the very rich diet that that I don't even know if that's a criticism as much as like I I, I just I, I can this is like an indie film it's like a ten hour indie film to me. Yes, no, this is so interesting. We see him go to this church, and by the way, the actor Steve Hewn, he his family was part of a church like this, and he had a lot to do with the writing of this. It's also, I mean, did you notice his gorgeous voice when he starts singing? You know, the Crush Factor just went through the roof. Uh, he said it was very e- easy for the tears to come when the other actors sang with him. Of course, he played it straight. Now, we, the viewer, we know that part of the reason he's going to this church is because he's hung up on his old girlfriend, who is now one of the mainstays of the church congregation and married to another guy. He also he, wants money he, from them. He also wants to use them. Yes, to, um... yes. So, there, you know, the, there's part of you that, like if you're an atheist and you watch that scene, there is a little bit of giggling. If you are already in the show and you understand that he's not entirely pure while about why he's in the pews, but when he breaks down, you know, like he needed to have a breakdown. His life is out of control and he's lying about it to everyone. So, um, yeah. yeah, the, uh, the, the pain and the release the laughter and the horror. I mean, this is a, you know, you're right. It's a, this is a full flavor uh, television show. It is not I Love Lucy. <laughs> no, no, it's not Friends. <laughs> it is not, no one's trying, <laughs> It's the opposite. It's the opposite of something like, I don't like the Big Bang Theory. Uh, but it, it is beef. It is beef and it's on Netflix. Netflix making a play for some awards come award season with this one. Susie Bright, thank, thank you. I, I, I promise to never cut you off in a parking lot. You'd better watch out, dude. Okay, I'll see you later. All right. Thank you, Susie Bright. Beef is now on Netflix. Enter at your own risk. Know that it's going to be a very rich diet like beef itself. It is full of nutrients, but uh, definitely heavy. Also, thanks to Sarah Stewart for talking to me about how to blow up a pipeline. I don't recommend you blow up a pipeline, but I do recommend that you see this movie. And thanks to Stephen Garrett for sinking his teeth into Renfield. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We will continue to cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV as long as I draw breath, and maybe even after, if someone is able to film my shoes. We will see you next week for our 101st episode. I will talk to you then. Original Production.